This is tape number five of an eight-tape series called Journey to Recovery with Joe and Charlie, recorded in Laughlin, Nevada, August 1998. For additional copies of the series or a catalog of all our 12-step tapes, call Encore at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com. Let's do it again later on. I think there's a valid reason behind this. Uh, you know, I'm told that we alcoholics are born to live in three dimensions. We're born to live with God and ourselves and our fellow human beings. And if we are praying with other human beings for the first time, we're beginning to fit ourselves back together in all three dimensions the way God intended in the first place. We alcoholics are the funniest people in the world. You know, we'll let our family see us on our knees in the bathroom, hugging the porcelain bowl, puking our guts up, morning after morning after morning. We come to AA and we try to straighten out our lives, and we're ashamed and embarrassed to let people see us pray. Isn't that something? Praying in the company of other human beings is always better. Anybody I work with that I sponsor, I, I, I require that they take step three with me for two reasons. Number one, if they take it with me, I know they have taken it. That's the only way I know for sure. But the real reason is, is every time we do it together, it means more to me. And it has more strength and more power for myself. I think it's a great idea. Let's take about a 15-minute break, and we're going to jump right into step four. See you in a little bit, okay? Okay. Let's try to be back about 10 minutes after three if we can. By the way, the winning ticket's still on the roll. Nobody's We've made our decision. We've uttered our prayer. And the book says, Next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision... Step three. ...was a vital and crucial step... It could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. <clears throat> Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Now, we always like to stop here for just a moment and look at the time element between step three and step four. <clears throat> uh, we always hear people asking the question, how long should you wait after you do step three until you start on step four? And we hear all kinds of answers. Sometimes they'll say, well, 30 days, and maybe 90 days, or maybe six months. Uh, we heard a professional in the field one time counseling people to wait a minimum of two years. And our question back to that person was, how many people have you killed with that statement? Mm -hmm. You see, we're trying to find a way to live where we not only can be sober, but we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And every day that we put off and procrastinate step four is a day that we're still filled with resentments, a day that we're still filled with shame and fear and guilt and remorse, another day that we don't feel good. 
And we really don't know how many days we could go without our mind beginning to think about taking a drink. And next thing you know, we've convinced ourselves that it's okay to drink, and we end up drunk all over again. I don't know how many days I could go under those conditions, and frankly, I'm not very interested in finding out. Our book tells us when we should take step four. Step three will have little permanent effect unless at once followed by this strenuous effort, which is step four. And you know that does make sense, doesn't it? As far back as I can remember, four has always followed immediately after three. <laughs> now knowing that and knowing we might get drunk if we don't get on with step four, why would we still tend to procrastinate? And I think two or three reasons behind it. Number one is fear. Some of we older members tend to play king off of the mountain with his step. And we tell the newcomer how tough it is. By God, just wait till you get to step three, four, blah, 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 blah. We just literally scare them to death. Let us be the first to say today that if we take step four, according to Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, there is nothing whatsoever to be afraid of. And I think we're all going to see that in just a little bit. Okay, knowing there's nothing to be afraid of, then why would we still tend to procrastinate? And I think probably one of the greatest reasons is simply confusion. For years, we could not see how to do step four according to the big book. And the reason we couldn't see it is the instructions are there, but they are so simple that we alcoholics, with our keen intellectual alcoholic minds, looking for something more complicated overlooked the simplicity of step four. So in our desperation, we read over in step five something about sharing all your life story. And we said, oh, that's what they want us to do in step four, is write our life story so we could share it in step five. That's what I did in the beginning. Now, my life story might not have been important to others, but it must have been to me. There was 92 pages in it. I took it to another poor, suffering human being, and I asked them to read it, and they did. And he said, not very pretty, is it? And I said, no, it isn't. He said, you'll never have to be that way again. He threw it in the waste paper basket. And I learned nothing from my life story to contribute to my alcoholism, certainly nothing new. Because everything I wrote down, I already knew it, so nothing new came out of it. And today I realize that 95% of my life story really doesn't have anything to do with my alcoholism anyhow. The fact that I was born in 1929, I don't think it's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. It may have had something to do with somebody else's alcoholism, but not mine. <laughs> the fact that I graduated from high school at age 17 went immediately into the service. I don't think it's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I was married at age 21, I don't think it's got anything to do with it. But i tell you what it did do. The 95% that had nothing to do with it very effectively covered up the 5% that did. And I learned nothing from my life story to contribute to my alcoholism. So in our desperation again, somebody in Minneapolis, Minnesota wrote a four-step inventory guide. We took the Minneapolis guide, combined it with the big book, and got more confused yet. Somebody in Dallas, Texas wrote a four-step inventory guide. We took the Dallas guide, combined it with the Minneapolis guide, combined it with the big book, and got more confused yet. 
have no idea how many are floating around today. Uh, we saw one that had 20 pages in it. I'll guarantee you, if you wasn't crazy as hell when you took it, you would be when you were through with it. It was one of those. All the time, the instructions have been here. We just never could see them before because we didn't understand how Bill writes. And I think today, if we can just kind of sit back and relax, look at a few simple ideas, we're going to see how easy this thing really is. There's two things we've got to remember. First, he loved to use comparisons. Talking about one thing that we already know to teach us something new. Also, he did not like to repeat himself using the same words over and over. So he would tell us something, then turn around and tell it again, but use different words the second time. And bearing those two thoughts in mind, I think we can see how simple this thing really is. He starts out by saying, therefore we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Immediately he jumps into business. He says a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. And I think his first comparison is this. You know, if you had a business, and I don't care what it is, selling ladies' purses, men's watches, bicycles, or whatever, if you did an inventory once in a while, and by the way, inventory is defined as a written list of items, if you didn't go in there and make a list of the things that are in there, you wouldn't know what's been stolen that you didn't get paid for. If you did an inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's been sold and you need to reorder to put new stock in its place. If you did an inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become damaged. Nobody wants to buy it. It's sitting there taking up valuable floor space day after day after day. You're probably paying interest on borrowed money to put it in there in the first place. If you did an inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become out of style. You need to put it on sale so you can get it out of the store to put something new in its place. If you had a business and you did an inventory once in a while, you probably would go broke, and I think we can all see that. Okay, in our personal lives, we have a business too. The greatest business in the world for us. And it's the business of finding a way to live where we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness so we don't have to go back to drinking. And if we don't inventory in our personal business, chances are we're not going to find what's damaged and unsaleable in our heads that's going to cause us to go broke too. And going broke for us is simply going back to drinking. So whether we're dealing with a personal business or a business business, in either case, we would probably go broke without the inventory. Now then, he's going to tell us how to take a business inventory. He says, taking a commercial. Now, that burned him. He could have said business again, couldn't he? But he'll use the word commercial, which means the same thing. Taking a commercial inventory. Now, Joe, up here on the screen, and you also have it in your handout material, we're going to have a little picture up here that's going to be called inventory comparison. I think it's step five in your handout sheet. On one side says business, the other one says personal. And we're going to take a few key words out of the, out of the uh, big book and put it under business. He said, taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding, and we're putting fact-finding under business. 
and a fact-facing process. We're putting fact-facing under business. It is an effort to discover the truth, and we're putting truth under business, about the stock-in-trade, and we're putting stock-in-trade under business. The stock-in-trade is what's in there to sell. The ladies' purses, the men's watches, the bicycles, or whatever. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods, and we're putting under object, under business, disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. To get rid of them promptly and without regret. And we're putting promptly and without regret under business. In other words, we're going to go in there and we're going to try to find the facts. When we find them, we're going to face the facts. We're looking for the truth about the stock in trade. We're trying to find the damaged and unsaleable goods. The good items will not cause us to go broke. Oh, they resell every day and we're making money off of them. The damaged and unsaleable goods, they're the ones that's blocking the floor space and the shelf space and costing us money. When we finally find them, we're going to try to get rid of them promptly and without regret. We can't put anything new in there in their place until they're gone. We're trying to find the stock in trade that's damaged and get it out of there. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. He's got to be honest. Once in a while, he'll try to fool himself. He'll say, well, the reason these ladies aren't buying these purses is that they just don't understand what's good for them. You know, he made the decision to buy them. He hates to admit that he made a mistake. And he may keep them in there longer than he should, and if he does, it's going to cost him money every day. Is there anybody in here would have any problem with what he's told us about the business inventory? That we're going to try to find the facts? When we find them, we're going to face them. We're looking for the truth about the stock in trade. We're looking for the damaged and unsaleable goods. When we get rid of them, we're going to when we find them, we're going to get rid of them promptly and without regret, always looking for the stock in trade that's damaged. Anybody got any problems there? Okay, now watch it. He used a series of words to tell us how to take our personal inventory, which means basically the same thing. He said we did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. So we go to step four, and step four says, now we're under personal on the right-hand side of the sheet. Step four said we made a searching. And we're putting searching straight across from fact-finding. They mean the same thing. To find the facts, to search out the facts. We made a searching fearless. And we're putting fearless straight across from fact-facing. They mean the same thing. To face the facts, to fearlessly look at them. We made a searching fearless moral, and there's where we got in trouble. We said, oh, damn, there's that list of dirty, filthy, nasty items, and we don't want to look at them, and we sure as hell don't want to show them to anybody else. Now, I'm not sure what old Bill Wilson knew, but I know one thing. This guy understood the English language, and I really believe that if he'd wanted you and I to make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items, he would have said we made a searching and fearless amoral or immoral inventory. 
He didn't say that. He said more. Bugged the hell out of us. Till eventually we went back to the dictionary. Do you know what the word moral is defined as? Truth. Things as they really are. The right and wrong of any given situation. The truth about things. So truth and moral mean exactly the same thing. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of what? Of ourselves. We're the only stock in trade that we have in this business of staying sober. Nobody else can make us sober. And nobody else can make us drink. Oh, I'll agree. They can make us thirsty as hell once in a while. <laughs> but they can't make us drink. We decide whether we drink or not. Now, what part of us decides whether we drink or not? Is it our body or is it our mind? The real problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind. So we're going to look inside ourselves, in our minds, and we're going to find those flawed thinking processes, which is the damaged and unsaleable goods, that block us off from God. Now, we've made a decision to turn our will over to God, and as long as our mind is filled with damaged and unsaleable goods, then God can't direct our thinking. We're going to have to find them, and after we once find them, then we're going to get rid of them promptly and without regret. And when those flawed thinking processes leave our minds, then our mind is opened up for God's thinking to enter. But it's only after they're gone that God can enter. Now, there are three common manifestations of a life run on self-will, and we've already talked about them. The flawed thinking processes in our mind that blocks God out are resentments, fear, guilt and remorse associated with the harms done to other people. And as long as our mind is occupied with those thoughts, then God's thoughts can't come in. It's just that simple. Now, I like to look at my head up here as a little bitty store, not much. A little bitty quick trip or 7-Eleven, not a hell of a lot in it, never has been. <laughs> Over here in this part of my store, I've got some display cases, and they are filled with resentments. Damn him. Damn her. By God, I'll show them. Bloody, bloody, blah, 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 blah. Those display cases are already full. God simply cannot get in there because he is blocked out by the damaged and unsaleable goods called resentments. Over here in this part of my store, I've got a little file cabinet that's filled with fear. Oh, my God. What's she going to do when she finds out about this one? Oh, my God. What's the banker going to say when that check hits there this time? He's already told me he's going to file on me next time. Oh, my God. Is that my car sitting out in the front, front end torn up? Don't know how. Oh, my God. And on and on and on. God can't get in there. He's very effectively blocked out by those fears. Back here in the back of my store, I've got a little file room, and it's full of guilt and remorse. God dwells on each of us. We know the difference between right and wrong. We do these things that hurt other people. We're scared to death what they're going to do when they find out, and the guilt and remorse begins to eat us up. God can't get in that storeroom. He's already blocked out of there. Have an emergency phone call for who? If I want God to direct my thinking, then I'm going to have to do something about this guilt and remorse. And if I can remove them 
then God's thinking can enter into my mind and direct those portions of my mind where he was effectively blocked out. Now my book is getting ready to show me just exactly how to look at these things truthfully. It's getting ready to show me how to remove them. Then the greatest thing it's going to show me is how to keep them from coming back in the future. And if I'll do my part, then God can direct my thinking. But until I've done my part, God can't. It's just that simple. He says, we did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly, truthfully, morally. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways and what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem, all forms of spiritual disease, for we've been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. So the first thing we're going to do is look at these resentments. Now I think we need to look at that word and make sure we understand what it means. The word resentment is made from two old, old words. First is, are the letters R-E, re. When you see re in front of another word, it always means to do again. Like repaint, replay, redo, always means to do again. The last part of this word, sentiment, comes from an old word called sentiri, which means to feel. So the word resentment itself means to re-feel. Okay. Let's say we're going through life, which we do on a daily basis, remembering always that everybody has got self-will. That's one of the problems. It's standard equipment. Everybody's got self-will. From time to time, other people get sick in self. Maybe their social instinct is out of kelter. Maybe their security instinct or their sex instinct is fouled up. And they do something to me that threatens one of my basic instincts of life. Maybe they put me down in the eyes of other people and it threatens my self-esteem. Maybe they do something to threaten one of my personal relationships. Maybe they rip me off and steal my money from me. Maybe they do something to interfere with my sex life. Or maybe they do something that threatens one of my ambitions for the future. Now when they do that, that's a wrong on their part for doing so. That's not a resentment. It doesn't become a resentment till I go over in the next room. Or I go home that evening. And I replay that thing in my mind. And I feel the pain the second time. The first time they did it to me hurt me. But when I go over here and replay it and feel the pain the second time, then I'm doing it to myself now. They did it to me the first time, but I'm doing it the second time. And after a while I'll replay it again. And I'll feel the pain the third time. 
And what I found in my life is I'm not always completely honest with me. Because it seems as though when I replay this thing, each time I tend to change it just a little bit. And I tend to make what they did to me just a little bit worse. I tend to make what I did just a little bit less. I tend to make the pain just a little bit deeper. And you let me play it over in my head enough times, after a while I can say to myself, I was just standing there doing nothing. <laughs> and they come along and did it to me. <laughs> I love to watch football games. And in a football game, you'll see a guy called a quarterback that sometimes will throw a pass. And the guy that's supposed to receive it, many times it's thrown up high on purpose so the other guys can't catch it. And the guy that's going to receive it several many times has to jump way up in the air to catch it. Now the members of the opposing team, they have learned that if you can hit this guy while he's still up in the air, before he really gets good control of that ball, you can knock it loose from him. So they wait until he jumps up in the air, and when that ball touches his fingers, they knock the hell out of him. Now he's completely defenseless now. And they'll hit him, and sometimes it'll just turn him upside down. He'll fall on his head, his neck bends sideways, his legs spread apart, one arm bends completely behind his back, and it just hurts the hell out of him. And you can see that he's hurt. Now, the football game, though, is like the game of life. It's going to go on. They're not going to stop it very long. One of two things will happen with this guy. They'll run out there and check him over, and if he isn't hurt too bad, they'll pump a little air in him and get him up and get him going again. If he's hurt too bad, they'll drag him off to the side, they'll put somebody in his place, and the game starts again. The football game is going to continue. I don't care what's happened. Now, the announcer up in the booth, though, he's got a resentment machine. Because after a while, he'll say, let's look at that again. And this time, it is in slow motion and living color. My God, it looks twice as bad as it did the first time. You can see how far his neck really did bend, how far his legs spread apart, and how badly that arm was bent, and it looks twice as bad as it did the first time. After a while, the announcer will say, let's look at that again. <laughs> the game's been going on now for 15 minutes. The announcer's still bouncing this guy up and down, up and down, up and down, off the ground. Now, we alcoholics have up here in our heads a little resentment replay machine. And we get up in the mornings and we toot it up in living color. We clean the limbs on it because we don't want to miss nothing. And we shine it on the world all day long. And we record everything they do to us that's bad. And we go home at night and sit down and play it over in our head and make ourselves sick and blame it on them. Now, once in a while, we have a bad day. Once in a great while, they won't do anything to us. 
That's a bad day for an alcoholic. <laughs> We've got our machine cleaned up, the lens is clean, tuned up, we shine it on the world and nobody will do anything to us. We don't have anything bad to record. Don't recall, record nothing good. Do you know what we record those days? By God, we record what they're thinking. That's what we do. We go home at night, play it over in our head, make ourselves sick. Now, there's a bad thing about a resentment. Because each time you play it over your head, each time you throw it out there, after a while, it turns around and it comes back at you. And when it comes back at you, it comes back as self-resentment. And we begin to resent ourselves for being in a position to have those things happen to us. And after a while, self-resentment turns to self-pity. And that's the sickest, sickest that a human being can be up in their head, is to be filled with self-pity. And we alcoholics love self-pity. We like to get up early in the morning, put self-pity on as a cloak of dignity, and as we go out the door, we say, here I come, mean old world, just do it to me. I know you're going to get me because you always do. It is a sick, sick way to build our self-esteem. Because after all, if the whole world is picking on us, we must really be somebody. And my God, we love that self-pity. If you want an alcoholic mad, if you want to make them mad, you try to feel sorry for one of us. And we'll tell you in a hurry, don't you feel sorry for me. That's my damn job, you know. <laughs> Is there any way that God can enter a mind filled with that kind of crap? No way. Our thinking is controlled and dominated by these resentments and all the things that go along with it. God is absolutely, completely blocked out of our mind through these resentments. At the very least, we're going to have to do something about them. Now, the instructions on how to do them are here in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous are just so simple that we never could see them before. We've given you a sheet in your handout material called a review of resentments. I believe that's page 9 and 10. And what I would ask you to do now is take those last two columns, try to fold them over where you can't even see them, where all you're looking at is column 1, 2, and 3. <coughs> the example on page 65 has already been filled out. And we didn't know the procedure that Bill used to fill it out. That's where a lot of our confusion is. So what we've given to you in the first three columns is page 65 in the blank form. We want to emphasize we're not trying to bring another inventory in AA. We've already got enough of those. Page 65, the resentment sheet that you have is 65 in the blank form. Column 1, I'm resentful at. Column two is the cause. Column three affects mine. Now let's see if we can't find the instructions on how to fill it out. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Okay, you've got the paper now, and we're going to start setting them down. You know, we're always taught to read from left to right. And if you read from left to right and trying to figure out the inventory on page 65, you would start with the Mr. Brown. And you write down the resentment, and then you change your mind and go to the second column and write down the cause. Then you change your mind again and go to what part of self was affected, and you have to do, 
use those basic instincts of life and try to write down what part of self was affected. Then you'd go back to the first column mentally and write down Mrs. Jones. And then you'd change your mind again and go to the second column. Well, you get the idea if you do that long enough, you, if you have a mind like mine that says tilt, just too much information. And I say, well, what the hell? All they wanted was a life story anyhow. So I just disregard this. Well, we didn't know how to fill out this, this column. It seems to us that you fill this out one column at a time from top to bottom, leaving a little space in between the names in column one. So you'll fill that in over in column two and a little bit later. Because our book said that we listed people, institutional principles, whom we were angry, period. From top to bottom in column one, we would simply write down all the people, principles, or institutions with whom we were angry from top to bottom, leaving a little space between each one of them all the way down. People, that's self-explanatory. The institutions are those things such as the police department, the Internal Revenue Service, the federal government, the church, etc. Principles are those old, old guiding, I hate to use the word laws, but it's the only thing I can think of, natural laws that's interfered with our style of living. The Ten Commandments, so that's a set of principles. And when I was out there drinking, I don't want to hear nothing about the Ten Commandments. I'm breaking all of them to one, and maybe I broke it in the blackout too, I don't know. <laughs> Another old principle I've always hated said, what goes up must come down. I never cared for that one. Another one said, what you give out is what you get back. Another one said, there are no free rides. You'll pay for whatever you get. And my dad used to say, when you lay down with dogs, you'll get fleas on you every time. Those old, old principles that interfered with our style of living. Now, you don't need to be sober very long to do this. All we got to do is take these things out of our head, put them down on paper. You don't have to have a high education to do this. If you can't write, you feed the names to somebody else and let them write them down. And while our mind is on one thing and one thing only, let's fill out the first column from top to bottom. I've never seen an alcoholic yet that did not know just who and what by God we're mad at. We spend thousands of hours sitting around in bars talking about it. All we got to do is take it out of our head, put it down on a piece of paper, and we would have completed the first instruction. And hopefully the same thing will happen to you that happened to me when I did this. They came to me and they said, list your resentments. And I said, I don't have any. And they said, surely you got one or two. Maybe you don't understand what the resentment is. And they explained to me that it was to refill old pains and old hurts. And I said, oh yeah, I got a couple of those. They said, put them on paper. Leave a little space in between each one. So I got a sheet of paper and leaving space between like the book does, First thing I knew, I had about eight names on that sheet of paper. And I got a, reached over and got another sheet of paper. And after a while, I had eight more listed. And I got another sheet of paper, and next thing you know, I had eight more listed, and I got another sheet of paper. I got up to about 152. And I said, man, you're a matter in hell at everything. I did not know that. You can only see one resentment at a time in your head. I don't think any of us will ever see how many resentments we really do have. 
and how much they control and dominate our thinking till we get them all down on a sheet of paper and see them in their entirety for the first time. Now, we've made a decision to let God direct our thinking. And if we've got that many resentments, then resentments direct our thinking, and God can't, and it's just that simple. Just by the listing of the names, we learn something very valuable about ourselves, how resentful we really are. You just can't see this stuff in your head. It has to go on paper. So we filled out the first column. Now, Bill said, Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, my employer, and my wife. He probably had more than that. I think he just didn't want to use any more space in the big book. Mine was that long, long list of about 152 names, Joe. We asked why we were angry, period. Stop right there and go to the second column, the cause. Now, he's uh, and we, in the illustration, and he used it here very short and sweet, just four or five little words, not too many words to describe the cause. Simplicity is the key here in the, in the second column. Now, he's resentful at Mr. Brown. Why? His attention's to my wife. He told my wife of my mistress. Brown may get my job at the office. Now, I don't even know Mr. Brown. I'm already mad at him myself. <laughs> now, he's resentful at Miss Jones because she's a nut. She snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend, and she's a gossip. What she did was put his old drinking buddy in the nut house, and he, she don't, he don't like that at all. He's mad at the employer. Why? Well, he's unreasonable and unjust and overbearing. Probably said, say, Bill, by the way, where were you all day yesterday anyhow? <laughs> he threatens to fire me for drinking and padding my expense account. That's unreasonable as hell, isn't it? Yeah. Very narrow-minded. He's, he's really mad at his wife. She misunderstands and nags. And she likes old Brown. <laughs> and she wants the house put in her name. Yeah. Uh -huh. You tie that together, like an old Brown wanting the house put in her name, it's about time to get a little bit upset, isn't it? So simply in the second column, we just write down, we ask ourselves why we were angry beside each name one at a time, using four or five little words to describe the cause. There may be one cause or there may be two or three causes, but we simply write them down in the second column. We're not going to write any big, long essays. No. Just a few simple words by each name. And it may be one cause, or there may be multiple causes, as we have here. Whatever it is, we put it down. I filled out the second column, and I began to realize something that's become very valuable to me. I began to realize it's not the people and the institutions that I'm upset with. It's what they've done to me that's got me upset. You know, I can take Mr. Brown out of here, and put Mr. Green in. I'll be just as upset with Green as I am with Brown if he does the same thing to me. I could take Mrs. Jones out of here and put Mrs. Smith in. If Smith does the same thing, I'm going to be just as upset with her as I am with Jones. Well, I could take my wife out of here and put my mistress in. And if she does the same thing, I'll be just as upset with her. I begin to realize it's not them that's got me upset. It's what they've done to me that's got me upset. Now, the reason that's valuable is because of this. I'm getting ready to start out on a lifetime-changing process to develop the best possible relationship that I can with the world and everybody in it so I can have maximum peace of mind and serenity. 
a part of that relationship is a little later on in my program, I'm going to have to go to a bunch of people and ask them to forgive me for what I've done to them. By the same token, I'm going to have to forgive others for what they've done to me. And a part of that forgiving process can start right here. When I begin to realize it's not them, it's what they've done that's got me upset, that starts getting names out of the way. And it's going to make it a lot easier to handle this in the future. So I filled out two columns now. Number one, I learned how resentful I really am, how much that blocks me from God. And number two, I've learned it's not them I resent. It's what they've done to me that I actually resent. Two valuable things. Now let's look at the third column. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, <clears throat> including sex, were hurt or threatened, so we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, or our personal or sex relations which been interfered with? We were usually definite as this example. And again, using that information that we got from the basic instincts of life, we said, simply fill out the third column, what part of self was affected by that? What, part, what basic instinct was threatened by the action that those people did? I can't be upset with you unless you've done something to threaten one of these basic instincts of life. If you threaten my social instinct in any way, my self-esteem, my personal relations, etc., you're going to upset me and make me angry. If you threaten my security, either material or emotional, you're going to upset me and make me angry. If you threaten my sex life in any way, you're going to upset me and make me angry. And as I begin to fill out the third column and put down the part of self that is affected, in most cases I begin to see a pattern develop. Maybe beside each name I'm putting down self-esteem. Maybe I begin to see my main problem is self-esteem. Maybe I'm putting down security. Maybe I see where my main problem deals with security. Maybe I'm putting something under sex each time. I begin to realize that the sex thing is my main problem. I begin to see which part of self really does stand out. Probably going to be a combination of all three. But I can certainly see which part of self really does predominate and stand out when I keep seeing it appear over and over and over and over again. When I filled out the third column, I, uh, here's where I've learned something that I think is the most valuable thing I ever learned about me. As I filled out the third column for the first time in my life, I could see where anger comes from. I've always had a problem with anger. I've always acted and reacted with anger. I would do something that would hurt other people. I would be ashamed of it. I'd say, I'll never do that again. I'll turn right around, get angry, do it all over again. You can't do anything about a problem until you understand the problem. I never did understand where anger came from. I always thought it was just one of those feelings that flitted into your mind. You could do nothing about it. Today I realize that anger comes from a threat to one of these basic instincts of life. Now, if my basic instincts are under control at the level that God intended, if my relationship with God is okay, you can do about anything you want to to me, and I'm not going to experience anger over it. But I'll guarantee you, if my instincts are out of control, 
My relationship with God is not right. About anything you do to me that threatens a basic instinct creates anger. And I romp and stomp and raise hell with you and everybody around you. You know, this lady that I'm married to today, hopefully I can introduce you to her tomorrow. She's here with us this weekend. A beautiful lady named Barbara. If there's any such thing as a black belt Al-Anon, she's one of them. She's got now about 31 or 32 years in the Al-Anon Fellowship. Great, great program. But Barbara is like all human beings. She has self-will too. And once in a great while, she'll get sick himself. Al-Anons do that once in a while. Not too often, but once in a while. And she'll do something that threatens one of my basic instincts of life. And when she does it, it, it hurts. Now, I found that if my relationship with God is right and my instincts are at the level God intended, I'm able to say, well, the poor old thing. <laughs> and they're sick just like we are. And they can't help it any more than we can. And that thing will just slide off of my back and just won't bother me at all. And I just go on about my business. Now, 30 days later, though, the same lady does the same thing. Only this time, my instincts are not under control. And my relationship with God's not right today. And I react to what she did with anger. And I romp and I stomp and I raise hell with Barbara and everybody around me all day long. The same lady did the same thing. But I choose to react to it in an entirely different manner based upon my relationship with God and where my instincts are that day. Thank God I've learned that. Because you see, I can't do anything about Barbara. And I can't do anything about any other human being on earth. But I can do something about my relationship with God and keeping my instincts under control where I don't have to get angry. And if I don't have to get angry, I'm in much less chance of drinking than I am if I just continue that anger over and over and over. Thank God I've learned that. One of the best pieces of information I ever found. Now, we have filled out three columns. Column one, we listed the people we're angry with, resentful at, and we realized how resentful we really are and how much that blocks us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. Column two, we've learned it's not them we're resentful at, it's what they've done to us. Column three, we've learned it's not even what they've done to us. It's how we choose to react to it based on our relationship with God and whether our instincts are under control or not. Now we're going to fill out a couple of names here from our inventories. We're not going to do the whole thing, but just two or three names as an example. The first thing, first name on my sheet was this lady named Barbara. Thirty some odd years ago, I hated this lady with a purple passion. If I could have done away with her and not get caught, I believe I would have done it. I used to lay awake at night fantasizing about this thing. Tomorrow morning when she's on the way to work, and by the way, she always worked. I believed in her being self-supporting through her own contribution. Always thinking of others. 
Tomorrow morning when she's on the way to work, she's going to get run over by a big semi-truck. And it's not going to be just any trucking company. It's going to be a very affluent trucking company. And they're going to run over her and kill her, and then I'm going to sue them. And I'm going to come out of this deal getting rid of her with two or three million dollars in hand. You Alanons are not the only ones that fantasize. We Alkies did it too. Believe me, we did. Second name on my sheet was the Internal Revenue Service. God, I hated those people with a purple passion. Just mention their name, and I began to frog at the mouth immediately. Joe, what was the first name on your inventory sheet? Rose. Rose. The wife number one, Rose. Now, it's just that simple. That's how you fill out the first column. We go to the second column. Why am I so upset with Barbara? Well, the last year before she went to Al-Anon, she had the audacity to file for divorce three times. She's spending more money on lawyers and divorces than I'm spending on booze and everything that goes with it. And my God, I hated her for that. Why am I so upset with the Internal Revenue Service? Well, they're trying to put me in jail, that's why. Joe, how come you're so upset with Rose? She had an affair with another man. After all I've done to her. I mean, all I've done to her. Had an affair with another man. Really upset with her. Now we go to the third column. Now, Barbara filing for divorce three times, is that a threat to my self-esteem? Oh, you betcha. What are other people going to think about me now? Taking this lady back after she's filed for divorce three times. Barbara filing for divorce three times, is that a threat to my personal relationships? Sure it is. She's going to take the kids and she's going to leave or they're going to kick me out, one of the two. No personal relationships. Her filing for divorce three times, is that a threat to my security? Oh, yeah, by the time she's through, she'll have it all. Don't worry about that. Is it a threat to my sex life? Oh, yeah, she probably won't let me have any sex if we get a divorce. The Internal Revenue Service trying to put me in jail. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? What are people going to think about me after this deal's over with? Is it a threat to my personal relationships? They're not going to let me have any relationship with my wife and children if I'm in jail. Is it a threat to my security? Oh, yeah, they're going to take every penny I've got by the time it's over with. Is it a threat to my sex life? <laughs> the kind I'd like to have, you betcha it's a threat to it. Now, there may be some in there I don't want, but... Old Rose had an affair with another man. Is that a threat to Joe's self-esteem? Is it a threat to his personal relationships? Is it a threat to his security? Yeah, he'll have to go to work now. She's been supporting him for the last ten years. <laughs> a threat to his sex life? Oh, yeah. All these things are a threat to those things. Okay. When we have finished out these three columns, and we've been able to see, column one, how many resentments we have, column two, 
the cause of the resentment. Column three, the part of self that was affected. And we've learned valuable information about ourselves just by filling out those three sheets. Now then, let's see what we do with those three sheets after they're filled out, Joe. So we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong as far as most of us ever got. And I always knew that. Yeah. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us, and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now, it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to fertility and happiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours which might have been worthwhile. And I read that last statement, and I stopped. And I tried to look back in my life and see how much time I've squandered in resentments. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know about me. And when I've got a good resentment churning around up here in my head, I'm pretty well paralyzed from doing anything worthwhile. And one of my favorite things that I was doing back when I was drinking was to get up early in the morning, have a drink of whiskey and a cup of coffee, and turn on my resentment replay machine and replay what she did to me yesterday and replay what that guy did to me a month ago and replay what that person said to me six months ago and replay what that damn boss did to me about a year ago and replay what that damn policeman did to me five years ago and replay what my uncle did to me ten years ago and replay what my mother did to me 15 years ago and replay what my father did to me 20 years ago and it took me just about an hour to run through that tape and I loved every moment of it when that tape would run out I'd have another drink of whiskey and another cup of coffee and I would turn on my get even machine <laughs> now by God the next time she does that I'll do this and she'll do that and suckle. I'll put it on her. They're not going to treat me that way. And it took me just about an hour to run through that tape. And I loved every moment of it. When I came into AA, I found out the only difference was I wasn't taking the drink of whiskey. I was having a cup of coffee, turn on the resentment replay machine, run it for an hour. Another cup of coffee, turn on the get-even machine, run it for an hour. I have spent literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in resentments. And as far as I can tell, they've never done me any good whatsoever. They certainly never made me any money. They never made me feel better. They only made me feel worse. They never straightened up a relationship with another human being. It only made them worse and worse and worse. And as far as I can tell, that was absolute, complete, wasted time. Now, as a human being, I really believe today that I'm allotted just so much time to be here on earth. And I'm beginning to approach the end of mine. And for the first time in my life, not only am I sober, but I am peaceful, happy, and free. 
for the first time in my life, I'm sober and I feel great. I didn't know that you could be sober and feel as good as I feel today. What little time that I have left, I want to enjoy every moment of it. I don't want to waste any more time in resentments or anything else that blocks me off from God. I want to enjoy every moment of every day that I've got left. I simply do not intend to waste any more time in resentments. They block you off from God. They block you off from your fellow man. They just make you sicker and sicker and sicker. And what time we spend in them is an absolute waste of time. That's one of the worst things about a resentment. Wasting what time we have left in resentments. But that's not the worst thing. Here's the worst thing about a resentment. He said that with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of the spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off in the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns when we drink again. And with us to drink is to die. That's the worst thing about a resentment. When we've got a good resentment churning around in our head, we don't feel good. We're blocked off from God. And after a while, the mind, wanting to feel better, begins to think about the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, we become insane. We convince ourselves it's okay to drink. And we end up taking a drink and we trigger the allergy and we end up drunk all over again. That's the worst part about a resentment. The book says if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We turn back to the list. You see, this is why you've got to have a written inventory. If you had it in your head, you would have lost it already. We turn back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. Always before, I looked at it to see what those suckers had done to me. Today I would look at it to see what that resentment is doing to me. And if it's blocking me off from God and maybe causing me to get drunk, then I'm looking at it from an entirely different angle. We begin to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. And I stopped. And I said, Heart Charlie, how, how dumb can you be? All my life I've been proud of the fact that I stand on my own two feet. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't need your advice, thank you. And I suddenly realized that other people, through my resentment toward them, have controlled and dominated my thinking as far back as I can remember. And if they've controlled and dominated my thinking, they've controlled and dominated my actions, they have absolutely, completely controlled and dominated my entire life for me. I always thought I was in charge, but I suddenly realized other people have been in charge as far back as I can remember through my resentments toward them. And then I said, man, you really are stupid, aren't you? Because some of these people have been dead and buried in the graveyard for years. 
and they've been reaching out from the grave, and they've had me by the yang-yang as far back as I can remember. And when I saw that, I said to hell with them. I'm not going to let those people, alive or dead, live in my head rent-free any longer. I've made a decision to let God direct my thinking. And if others direct it, alive or dead, justified or unjustified, then God can't. And it's just that simple. And an amazing thing happened to me right here. We alcoholics fancy ourselves as reasonably intelligent people. I don't know that we're smarter than anybody else, but I think we're reasonably intelligent people. And we don't like to look stupid. And when I saw the stupidity of letting those people control me and dominate me, it looked so dumb that about 95% of these resentments began to disappear automatically when I saw how stupid that really was. But I found that I had four or five or six that were so deeply embedded in my mind for so long that they didn't automatically disappear when I saw the stupidity behind them. And for those, I had to have some additional help. We now come to the first prayer in the big book in step four. We always hear about the step three prayers, the step seven prayers. We never hear about the step four prayers. Let's see how we can use prayer to remove those deep, deep-seated resentments. I said, how we could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. So you can't heal a sick wine with a sick mind. You can't wish your way out of it. Well, this was our course. We realized that the people who had wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. And though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. It's part of the prayer. We asked God to help us to show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And I'm like Charlie. I spent many, many years in my life and many hours of my life thinking. My mind was racing uncontrollably, figuring out some way I could get even with those people. And I finally figured out a way to get even with them. Well, the way you get even with people is you pray for them. And when you pray for them, then you're even. And you see, I didn't know that. And after I got sober, I'd been sober about three or four months, I went to a little conference in Apache, Oklahoma. And I met a lady there, some of you know. Her name was Alabama Carruthers. Some of you all knew Alabama. She became a big influence on my life. And she said a couple of things that night that really struck me. She said she had a soul sickness. And I could identify with that. Because my last night of drinking, I was sitting on a bar stool and I had a real sick feeling in my stomach. And it wasn't a throwing up type sick, it was sick feeling. And she said it was a soul sickness. I said, that's what I had, a soul sickness. And, and then she said another thing that night. She said, I have peace of mind today. And boy, I mean, that really struck me. Because that's all I'd ever wanted was peace of mind. And I loved Alabama. She was always excited about life and what was going to happen next. And then after that meeting was over with, we were sitting around the lobby of this hotel. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting there watching Alabama operate. And it wasn't saying anything. Finally, it was just Alabama and myself and my little sponsor, George, a little black guy laying in her lap. And uh, I began to talk to Alabama. I said, Alabama, you said you had peace of mind tonight. How did you get peace of mind? I want peace of mind. And she said, well, Joe, tell me what's going on in your mind. And I told her how I was going to meetings and going to meetings and going to meetings. But that night I'd go home and lay down in my mind would fly over and I began to think about all those situations that we talked about. 
And she said, well, Joe, you're just full of resentment. And I said, what is a resentment? See, I didn't know. She said a resentment was old angers and old hurts that are refelt over and over and over again. And all that anger that you intended to use up on, your, on them, you're turning it on yourself and making yourself sick and blaming it on them. She explained that to me, and it took a while for me to understand. Finally, I did. And she, I said, well, is there any solutions for these? And she said, yes, there is. This happens to be. And she referred to page 67 and showed me this information here. And she said, some of those deep-seated resentments like you have, you're going to need some additional help. And she said on page 551 of this book is a story of a lady who had those deep-seated resentments. If you return to that page in the book, she said, we'll read and see what they had to say. Well, Alabama had a purse that was about this big, and it was about that deep. And she began to look in that purse. You know how they are. They're digging around. And she finally found this one of these books. I didn't think she was ever going to find it. She pulled it out of there, and she said, well, let's look at page 551 and see what this says. So I turned over page 551 in her book, and on the third paragraph, she said, this book says that I've had many spiritual expenses since I've been in the program, many that I didn't recognize right away, for I'm slow to learn, and they take many guises. But one was so outstanding, I like to pass it on whenever I can in the hope that it will help someone else as it helped me. As I said earlier, self-pity and resentment were my constant companions, and my inventory began to look like a 33-year diary, for I seemed to have a resentment against everybody I've ever known. All but one responded to the treatment suggested in the steps immediately. All but one automatically began to disappear when she saw how dumb they really were. But this one posed a problem. It was against my mother and it was 25 years old. I had fed it, fanned it, and nurtured it as one might a delicate child. And it had to become as much a part of, my, of me as my breathing. Now, he had provided me with my excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures, inadequacies, and, of course, my alcoholism. And though I really thought I'd been willing to part with it now, I knew I was reluctant to let it go. One morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it, for my reprieve was running out. And if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some magazines to take to a hospital group I was interested in. And I looked through them, and a banner across the front of one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the word resentment. Now, he said, in effect, and here it is. He said, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you'll find that you come to mean it and want it for them and that you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness, resentment and hatred, you now feel compassion, understanding and love. Well, I went home after that meeting and I got in my bed that Sunday night, lay down and my old mind flipped over again and started racing uncontrollably. And I said, well, I think I'll pray for those people. So I started praying for those people that night and my list got longer. The next day I prayed for those people again. And that afternoon I prayed for those people and that night I prayed for those people. It, and I don't know how long it went on, but it was two or three weeks or more, I don't know. But it seemed like I was in constant prayer for day and night, praying for those people. I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know that one morning, it was one of the beautiful spring mornings we have in Oklahoma, and the old, look, I got stuck in this stoplight. Just the length of the stoplight is what happened. I looked over at that beautiful house sitting over there, and the grass was so green, it was just beautiful. The greenest green I'd ever seen. The tulips were in full bloom, red and yellow. 
the little squirrels were in the trees and the birds were in the trees whistling and I got it's just a beautiful morning and I thought to myself my God how long has it been since I've seen that you know I could not remember I could not remember and when this book talks about being cut off in the sunlight of the spirit I really do know what that means I really do because that morning it was so vivid now what happened was that those people did not change but my thoughts and feelings toward them did change you see and has never returned again. Thank God for this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been there, and I don't want to ever return again. I think the reason this works so well is prayer for another human being, prayer for their welfare and their happiness. It's probably one of the greatest expressions of love that one human being can have for another. And love and hate can't exist on the same plane. And as we pray for that human being, asking that God give them in their life the same thing we want in ours, peace of mind, serenity, happiness, etc., over a period of time, that resentment will begin to disappear. Sometimes it just takes two or three prayers. Sometimes it takes every day for two weeks. Sometimes it might take every day for two months. But if we will consistently do it, we will find sooner or later that that resentment is replaced with love and the resentment disappears. Now, if you've got a resentment that you don't want to get rid of, for God's sake, don't pray about them. Because <clears throat> if you do, you're going to lose it. I know I speak from experience. You know, I had a guy that I really, really, really resented. And again, I think I would gladly have put him away if I could have gotten by with it without getting caught. And when I got to this part of the inventory, I, I went to my sponsor. Now, this is going to be one of those take-it-to-the-grave resentments. I had no desire to remove it at all. And I'd worked on all the others, but this one just stuck in there. And I went to my sponsor and I told him about it, and he said, Charlie, you've got to get rid of that resentment. And I said, I don't want to get rid of this resentment. He said, well, that's beside the point. He said, if you don't get rid of it, sooner or later it's going to get you drunk. And in my smart mouth and my head, I said, well, how in the hell do I do it? And he said, let me show you. And he took me to this prayer too. And he said, now read that and go home and do what it says. And you'll get rid of that resentment. And I went home and got down on my knees, which again I very seldom did in those days. And I said, God... I want you to give that son of a bitch everything he deserves. <laughs> and that's the only prayer I had for him that day. And I prayed again and again and again, and three or four or five days later, I don't know when, I found myself saying something I didn't really mean to say. I found myself saying, God, give him in his life what I want in mine, the same peace of mind, serenity, and happiness that I seek for myself. And four or five or six or seven days later, I don't know when, I woke up one morning and that resentment was gone, completely gone. And it's never returned since that date. And I think the irony in the whole situation is it wasn't 30 days later. This guy moved in as my next door neighbor. <laughs> this thing really does work. See, what I learned from this experience is that love is forgiving and love is forgiving. You see. Now just think. This old head up here that 
these display cases over here were filled with resentments has now been emptied out. The resentments, the damaged and unsaleable goods called resentment has now been removed from my mind. Now when that happens to me, there's another natural law that applies that says nature abhors a vacuum. No such thing as a vacuum or void. There's always something trying to rush in and fill it up. If those resentments disappear, God's not going to leave another hole in my head. I've got enough of those already. They will have to be replaced with something else. And the only thing that can replace them will be the opposite of them. Where my mind used to be filled with resentments, that portion of it is now filled with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill toward my fellow man. That's God's thinking. My thinking was the resentment. God's thinking is love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. And that part of my mind is now filled with God's thinking. You see, there's nothing negative here at all. This is a positive happening. In part of my mind, I've now got peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. Much less chance of drinking now than I was when I started the inventory process. And what really blew my mind is this. I didn't have to go to any other fellowships, and I didn't have to read any other books to find love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. If God dwells within me, and my book says He does, then that's always been a part of my makeup. I just never could use it before. In my chase for money, power, prestige, sex, and what I thought were the good things of life, those thoughts had to be repressed to let me operate on the level I wanted to operate on. But now that resentments are gone, they automatically come to the surface. I've never seen anything like this before. I don't really understand how this works. I simply know that if I do the simple things the book tells me to do, this happens automatically. And resentments are replaced with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill toward my fellow man. But it would do me no good to get rid of resentments if I didn't know how to keep them from coming back. Because the world is full of sick people. And they're going to do it to me again tomorrow. And if I'm not careful, I'll resent. And it seems as though I don't get just one. When I get one, let me play with it just a little bit, and then I've got two. And let me play with those two, and then I've got ten. And the next thing you know, I'm a basket case, and I'm sick all over again. I've got to do one more thing. Let's unfold those last two columns on your inventory sheet. And let's go to page 67, and we'll see if we can't find the information to fill out the last two columns. In the second paragraph on page 67, it says, referring to our list again. See, you've got to have a written inventory. This is the second time we've had to go back to it now. Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Uh-oh. We've never done this, have we? We've always looked to see what they did. We've never looked to see what we did. 
Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them, we placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. So we go to the fourth column. And if you'll notice the heading on the fourth column said, What did I do? Putting out of mind the wrongs others have done, I resolutely look for my own mistakes. What did I do, if anything, to set in motion trains of circumstances which in turn caused people or institutions to hurt me and eventually led to my resentment of them for doing so? So I went to column four, and I looked at this... Uh, lady named Barbara. And I said, now, Charlie, you forget what she did. You forget her filing for three divorces. What did you do, if anything, to set that in motion? And it took me just about five seconds to realize that if I hadn't been out there screwing around, she probably wouldn't have caught me. And she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. It took me another two or three seconds to say to myself, well, if I hadn't been sneaking around behind her back lying to her all the time, completely dishonest with her, she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. Another three or four seconds and I was able to say to myself, well, if I hadn't been blowing all of her money on booze and what I think was important, she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. And I begin to realize why I loved that resentment. Because you see, when I could concentrate on her filing for divorce and play that over and over and over and over in my head, gradually distorting the picture every time I played it over, making what she did a little bit worse and what I did a little bit less, and let me play it long enough. I could gradually transfer all blame to her and make myself as pure as the driven snow. And it was all her damn fault in the first place. I thought, my God, Charlie, have you done that with any other resentments here? I looked at the Internal Revenue Service. I said, now forget what they're doing to you trying to put you in jail. What did you do, if anything, to set in motion the fact they're trying to put you in jail? Why well, it didn't take two seconds to be able to say if I hadn't been cheating on my income tax, they wouldn't have been trying to put me in jail anyhow. And rather than look at what I had done to them, I had played it over and over and over and over, distorted the picture, transferred all blame to them, made myself as pure as the driven snow. That way I could continue through life doing what I wanted to do and never have to look at me because after all, it's all their fault in the first place. Showing this resentment against Rose, what did you do, if anything, to set that in motion? Charlie was out there screwing around, but I was committing adultery. Okay. <laughs> Sneaking around behind her back and lying to her all the time. And Rose finally got enough of it. 
she said, I'll show him. And she went out and had her own affair. And Joe had, over a period of time, played that resentment over and over. Gradually transferred all blame to him, or to her. Made himself as pure as the driven snow. I went down through my list of resentments. I never found a name on there that I hadn't done something to them to set this thing in motion. And I had resented it and played it over and over and distorted the picture, transferred all blame to them, made myself as pure as the driven snow. If you're a practicing alcoholic, you've got to develop these kind of skills. <laughs> you know, we have a conscience. We're not drunken bombs. We know the difference between right and wrong. And I don't think we could live with ourselves if we had to honestly see what was going on whenever we're out there doing our thing. But you see, we never have to see it because we've got this convenient thing called resentments that we play them over and over, distort the picture, and transfer all blame to others. And we men go from woman to woman to woman, and you ladies go from man to man to man, and we go from job to job to job, and we go from city to city to city, and we go from country to country to country, and it's always their damn fault. That's the only way we could live the kind of life we were living, by being able to transfer blame to others. And none of us realize how much we've been doing that until we take an honest look at these resentments and see the part that we played. Now, in the fifth column, you see the major character defects talked about in the big book. Where had I been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, or inconsiderate? All other character defects stem from these. In the fifth column, I asked myself this question. Which of the above character defects caused me to do what I did? or cause me to want to hold on to the old resentment even though I may have done nothing to cause it. Now going back to Barbara again, if I hadn't have been so selfish, I wouldn't have been out there doing those things that hurt my wife and children. If I hadn't have been so dishonest, I wouldn't have been sneaking around behind her back lying to her all the time. If I hadn't have been so self-seeking and frightened, saying to myself, Man, you're getting close to 40 years old. If you're ever going to do some of that, you better go do it before it's too late. Fear drives us to do things like that. If I hadn't been so inconsiderate of my wife and children, I wouldn't have been taking the chance of hurting them in the first place. I begin to see in the fifth column the type of character I had become through my years of living a life run on self-will. And when I saw it, I didn't like it. It made me sick. You see, I always fancied myself as a reasonably good person until I saw how I'd become so selfish and so dishonest and so inconsiderate of other people that I was continually doing things that hurt others. And they retaliated and I resented for it. I begin to see that if I don't change those things in the fifth column, if I stay selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, 
that I'm going to keep right on doing the same old things I've always done, drunk or sober. I'm going to keep right on hurting people. And they're going to retaliate. And I'm going to resent. And eventually it's going to block me off from God and I'm going to get drunk over it. But just think, if I could become a little less selfish, oh, I don't have to get perfect, I never will. But if I could become a little less selfish, if I could become a little less dishonest, if I could become less frightened and self-seeking, if I could become a little more considerate of other people and their needs and their wants, maybe I wouldn't have to do some of that kind of stuff. Maybe I wouldn't hurt people, and maybe they wouldn't retaliate, and I wouldn't have to resent. And just maybe I wouldn't have to get drunk over it. You see, what we're really doing here is step four. This is the resentment part of it. But out in the fifth column, I now see the exact nature of the wrongs that I'm going to talk to another human being about when I take step five. The resentment is the wrong. That's what blocks me off from God. But what's the exact nature of it? That means what's the truth of it? What's at the core of it? What's the inherent characteristic of it? That's what we'll talk about in step five. You know, when a guy comes to me and he's committed adultery 44 times, I don't care about that. All I want to know is what is within him that caused him to do it in the first place. If he's stolen... 364 times, I don't care about that. What I want to know is what's within him that caused him to do that. That's what we'll talk about in step five. In that fifth column, I now see the character defects, and I'm going to become willing to turn loose of in step six. Out there in that fifth column, I see the shortcomings now. I'm going to ask God to take away in step seven. And in my case, all the names from column one came off of this sheet to be added to the sheet later to be used for steps eight and nine. Because you see, when I get to step eight, it says I've got the list. I made it when I took step four. In my case, every one of those. In your case, probably some of them. In my case, all of them. Now, what I've really done, if I have done this the way the big book says is I have prepared myself with all the information I need for steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, resentment-wise. Not only have I gathered all the information I need for 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, well, I've had a positive result here. Resentments have disappeared, and they've been replaced with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. Did we do anything to be afraid of? Did we make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items? No. Did we do anything that was too complicated? No. I've never seen anything like this inventory, according to the big book. Now, I hear some of you saying, and, and I hear awful good. I've got good hearing. Charlie is good. <clears throat> I hear some of you saying, well, well, Charlie, that's probably right on those that we did something to them. But how about those that did it to us? And we didn't have anything to do with that. How about those that hurt us as kids growing up? How about those that hurt us in our marriages that we didn't do anything to cause it? Aren't we justified in having that kind of resentment? 
Well, I guess we are if we want to get drunk over it. But you see, a justified resentment blocks you off from God just like an unjustified resentment does. When you've got a justified resentment churning around in your head, then whoever or whatever you're resenting is controlling your thinking. If they're controlling your thinking, they're controlling your decisions. They're controlling your life for you. And you have given them power to actually kill you. Because you've given them power to cause you to get drunk again. Now, if you've got one of those resentments, and I don't care what it is, I don't care whether it's physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, or whatever, and I keep hearing in AA all the time this sexual abuse thing, and it usually centers on young women, but let me tell you something, men know about that too. I don't know how many fifth steps I've taken with men, and nearly every one of us, somewhere in the background, we've had that kind of stuff too. It's not just women, it's men. If you've got one of those kind of resentments, and you don't want to get rid of it, knowing full well it might get you drunk, then we better get it on this sheet of paper and take a look at it and see what we're doing with it. We're probably using it for rationalization and justification to rationalize not doing things we ought to go do, or just as importantly, to rationalize and justify doing things that we shouldn't be doing in the first place. Oh, the greatest excuse in the world is, if they hadn't have done that to me, then I wouldn't have to be the way I am today. They call that victimization. Now, I don't really think we've got any place for that in AA. We're all adults. It's time for us to realize that whatever's happened to us in the past does not have to control what we do today. Now, the only reason for that is to justify, rationalize, and etc. The woman in the book, she used her resentment against her mother to justify her lack of education. Bull. She could have gotten an education if she wanted to bad enough. She used it to justify her marital failure, bull. Mama didn't have anything to do with her marital failure. She even used it to justify her alcoholism. Mama had nothing to do with her alcoholism. She became alcoholic because she drank whiskey. And she drank enough of it, she became alcoholic. And I think it's time for us to realize we are responsible for what we think and how we feel. We are responsible for what we do today. Mother and daddy and other people are no longer responsible for that. Maybe they were when we were little kids, but we're not little kids any longer. And it really doesn't make any sense to let somebody hurt me 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago and then let them hurt me every day for the rest of my life. If I'm resenting them, they've got me and they're going to kill me. I need to put them on this sheet. Put down their name. What did they do to me? What part of self is affected? What did I do, if anything, to set it in motion? In this case, nothing. But then let's look in the fourth column. Are we so dishonest with ourselves we refuse to see the truth? If you've got a resentment in your head today, it's not true. I'm going to say that again. If you've got a resentment in your head today, it's not true. 
Oh, it was based on truth, and it's partially true. But if you've played it over and over and over, you've distorted it, and it's no longer true. Can we honestly look at it and see the truth behind it? Let's look in the fifth column and see if maybe we are so frightened of facing life without it. We refuse to turn it loose. Because you know, after all, if we turn it loose, then we've got to take responsibility for our own behavior. It's a hell of a lot easier to blame it on others. Are we so afraid of facing life without it? We won't turn it loose. Are we so inconsiderate of another human being that we fail to recognize that people that do those things to us, they're not necessarily bad people. They're sick people. They didn't necessarily do it to us. They would have done it to anybody in that position. If we could even begin to consider that, maybe we can start a forgiving process. Maybe we could straighten up a relationship with another human being before it's too late. After they're dead, it's too late. I'll guarantee you it is. Maybe we can do it while we're all still alive. If we will do those things, I think we can get rid of that resentment too when we really see the truth behind it and what we're doing with it. If we can't get rid of it that way, then we can use the ultimate tool. By golly, we can pray for them. And if we pray for one of those people who resent, that doesn't mean that we approve of what they did. That doesn't mean we're going to take them by the hand and walk hand in hand with them for the rest of our lives. 